0: big fan of the like the quiet scenes between battles and again it's a thing that's very much inspired by video games like final fantasy and mass effect and that's kind of like the quiet moments where they're all sitting around a fire and talking and reflecting and laughing and joking and making fun of each other and, and getting kind of vulnerable with each other um those are by far my favorite scenes and i think they're the scenes that throughout the book as long as you make them interesting and don't make them seem like lulls um they do so much to further a character and to make the moments where they're in dire straits seem more dire.
1: Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. Hi everyone, this is the first episode of our spring 2023 season, and we're starting out with a bang. Nicholas Eames, award-winning author of Kings of the Wild and Bloody Rose, joins me today to talk about ensembles. We dive deep into Kings of the Wild to discuss character arcs and motivations, how to balance the plot between an ensemble cast, and the ways he used 70s, 80s, and 90s band metaphors to inform his characters. This is a perfect episode for writers out there working on their own ensemble casts. Nicholas Eames, thank you so much for joining me on Speculative Sandbox. I have to do a shout out to my local indie bookstore, which is called Stacks Book Club. They had your book, Kings of the Wild, prominently displayed on their pop-up and I saw it and I grabbed it and loved it. So um, I'm just honored to be here with you. So thank you for being here.
0: Well, thank please thank them on my behalf as well. Yeah, that's great.
1: So for, we have a couple listeners that are really excited to hear from you that have read your work, Um, but for those that, you know, are kind of getting introduced to you right now, can you um, introduce yourself and talk about some of your projects?
0: Sure. Yeah. My name is Nicholas Eames. Um, I have two books out at the moment, Kings of the Wild and Bloody Rose. Uh, Both are part of a series called The Band. Uh, And while they do have kind of an arc that runs through them and will kind of conclude in a third book, um, they are totally standalone stories. So you could technically read the second one first. Um, uh, and yeah they're, they take place in a setting where mercenary bands are kind of the equivalent of of rock bands so they they're, they gather in groups of four or five men or women they have managers that book them gigs but those gigs are to slave dragons or save towns and do whatnot and uh, between those gigs they drink and smoke and act like hooligans pretty much like bands <laughs> of our modern day and past uh, and that's kind of sort of the premise that uh, ultimately the stories are kind of about family and found family so
1: yeah I love that uh I was very amused when that theme started to kind of unfold of the the music industry and it's such a it's it's such a perfect fit like you took two worlds and mashed them together and it makes so much sense and I enjoyed it a lot
0: thank you for saying so yeah it is very it's very much a shtick and it kind of sounds like an idea that a stoner might come up with and then never write but uh but I think it works really really well because I mean mm-hmm. if you played monsters why wouldn't you get famous for doing it
1: so Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so I have some rapid fire warm up questions for you before we kind of go into the theme of today's all episode right. which um, is Okay, all right. So they're related to the theme. So for Kings of the Wild is a loving homage not to just to fantasy novels but rock concerts. So what is your favorite band? Who's your favorite musician?
0: Um that definitely changes a lot sorry this won't be as rapid fire but yeah it's okay. it changes a lot um depending on what genre music I'm listening to like for Kings of the Wild I listened to all 70s stuff for Bloody Rose it was all 80s stuff for the third book it's all 90s stuff
1: awesome um,
0: but standouts among them Led Zeppelin obviously is somebody I really fell in love with while writing Kings of the Wild uh and then Meatloaf uh you know Always and Forever Boy oh boy those songs were Phenomenal.
1: <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, if you were in your own band or ensemble of friends, how would you characterize your friends and your own role?
0: Ooh, that's a great question. Uh, God, I really don't know, though. That's <laughs> funny. Um, you know, I'd like I, to think I'd be the, the Clay Cooper, if you will, even though for those mm-hmm. who haven't read the book, he's kind of like the you know, the glue that holds it all together, but I'm probably the moog who's technically the one that makes all the jokes. Nice. Yeah. Would you, would
1: you, would you give yourself like a specific power? Um,
0: well, God, yeah. No, I don't know. I'm pretty good with a bow actually, believe it or not. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah, I, had a, I had a bow as a kid and I practiced a lot. And by the time archery in high school came along, my teachers were like, what the hell have you been doing?
1: <laughs> you were born in the wrong time. You could yeah, have right. existed back then. What, okay, let's say that you are a background character in a fantasy story. What mm. is your occupation? And what information would you give the main character?
0: Um, I would probably be a bard, which, mm. you know, looking back on it, that's probably what my answer to the previous question should have been. Um, and yeah, I would just, you know, tell them, tell them some stories, pump their tires, warn them of danger, you know, the usual stuff. Would you
1: travel with them on, on their
0: gigs? I probably would. Okay. Yeah.
1: yeah. Cool. That, that, I really enjoyed that. I think you go into a little bit with like bards and um, how dangerous it is for them because they're not exactly action heroes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The bards are, they're kind of, they came about from, have you ever heard of the movie This is Spinal Tap? Mm,
1: yes. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: It's kind of like one of the OG, kind of like mockumentary movies, kind of like yes. Best in Show. It's got a lot of the same people. Um, and it's about rock and roll and there's a kind of running joke in it where the band's drummers always die mysteriously and no one knows why or even cares to really mm-hmm. too deeply. Uh, and that was kind of where the bards joke came from. It's like they just their bards attached to the main band in the main book just keep dying over and over and over. And they're just like, Oh, we'll get another one.
1: Yes, it's so funny because you're You're a writer, you're reading a book that's a product of your writing, and I'm a right reading. It's like an inside joke. it's It's really kind of tongue-in cheek. Well, thank you. All right. So let's get into the topic. the The general topic is about ensembles. I think um, a lot of our listeners who are interested in your interview might be writing ensembles of their own, and they really are interested in learning how you balance the characters and how they all feed into the overarching story. So using Kings of the Wild to kind of guide that, um, let me, I I have the plot description, so I'll read it here. Clay Cooper and his band were once the best of the best, the most feared and renowned crew of mercenaries this side of the Heart Wild. Their glory days long past, the mercs have grown old, fat, drunk, or a combination of the three. Then an ex-bandmate turns up at Clay's door with a plea for help, the kind of mission that only the very brave or the very stupid would sign up for. It's time to get the band back together. So we're going to be going into character arcs, um, story structures. So I anticipate spoilers, uh, but I'll leave it to you, your comfort level on on what kind of spoilers to give. And of course, for those listening, definitely get the book if this interests you. It's, I, I find it to be really fun and also informative. So let's get started. Um, I listed the characters. I have like an order I just kind of randomly came up with, but do you have a preference? Oh,
0: no, you go for it.
1: Okay, so we have Clay Slowhand Cooper, who is the kind of like the heart and voice of this mm-hmm. book. He, you're, you're going. He's the one that opens it up. He's big. He's intimidating, and he's very happy with his simple life as a husband and a father. So, can you talk about what you thought of Clay and his purpose for the story?
0: Sure. Um, well, Clay, I don't know why I decided to focus on him as the main character. To be honest. Um, but when I wrote those first three chapters of the book, which I wrote them and then I put it aside for a year to go work on something else, and just kind of always thought, oh, that was, that was a pretty good beginning. And ultimately, in the end, those three chapters were never altered or edited in any significant way. Um, it just, yeah, it just it had that comforting feel that starting listening to that set in the seventies music was kind of giving me, mm-hmm. a kind of a homey, folksy kind of vibe, um, and so. He, each member of the band, in, in Kings of the Wild at least, is sort of representative and inspired by a typical member of a rock band. So, with like the leader of the band, um, who technically really isn't Clay, being kind of the, the lead singer, but Clay is, the it represents the bassist of the band. Um, mm-hmm. And the bassist, when you like read about rock or learn about rock or even just... Um, common knowledge are often the least recognized members of a band. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows the lead singer. Everyone knows the lead guitarist. Sometimes you even know the drummer, but you kind of just space on the name of the, of the bassist. And, and that, uh, that kind of inspired Clay Cooper's character. He's, he is without the bassist in a band, there is no kind of heartbeat to the song, you know, mm-hmm. but it's the least glamorous position often. And so that was kind of the motivation for his character to be kind of like a, almost like a backseat in a way. And be able to look around at the other characters in the band that are a bit more vibrant than him, uh, and to be kind of the voice of, of sardonic reason amongst them. So that was kind of my inspiration for him. And he and he also uses a his weapon is a shield. Every every character in the book kind of has a weapon that mm-hmm. they're, they're kind of bread and butter, and his is a shield, um, which which as a character is in the book not not necessarily related to music whatsoever represents his character and the fact that he's there to protect people and to you know, to look after his friends uh, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just hurt people.
1: Yes. Well, and you did something really remarkable in the first couple of chapters that helped establish that heart, that foundation that he serves, um, because he's the one that has something to lose. So Golden Gabe shows up at his door and says, help me with this quest. And Clay's like, I have a family. I have a daughter. I have a reason to stay here. But then you have a moment between him and his daughter that makes him realize he needs to go help his friend save his daughter because he would hope that a friend would be do the same for if he lost his own daughter. Yeah. And that was such a tender um, emotional moment that I thought was such a nice way to kind of balance with the more, you know, grr, roar, you know, battle uh, mentality because it kind of shows um that there's emotions to this and I I find that like metal there's a lot of emotion in metal it can Mm -hmm. sound really loud and aggressive but there's emotion under all of it so I thought that was a really nice way to open the story
0: yeah me too and ultimately that's I'm pretty sure that scene is kind of what hooked my my agent and my editor the first time they read it so Mm -hmm. and hopefully any reader that reads it um you know if you don't like about time you get to the end of chapter three then don't bother I would say
1: Yes, because it, it does tell you what you're into, in for. And um, another character that was always making me get emotional was Moog, because mm-hmm. he had such a tender storyline. But we'll get to him in a minute. Okay. Golden sure. Gabe, the instigator in this book. He's the yeah. one that needs help saving his daughter. He's very, you know, he's golden. So tell me about him.
0: Uh, well, Golden Gabe represents the front man of the band, the leader, the kind of loud, brash voice of it, um, with his long golden hair and, uh, and, char- and charisma. Um, so he's kind of like the canary; where he draws everyone to him um, and oftentimes when you look at the aftermath of these bands when they go their separate ways it is the lead singer that has the most, you know, dire straits afterwards not always but the other ones are sometimes a bit more even keeled or maybe because of the fame attached to the lead singer uh, their life goes a little more um, awry so that was kind of the idea behind him. He'd, he'd had a great life and obviously he was very famous, but he kind of got himself into trouble, had a lot of bad habits uh, and was in retrospect, not like the, maybe the best father he could have been. So uh, this is also very much a story of him trying to atone uh, for the father he's been and, and just to be a better person. And, uh, but he knows that he can't be that person without the people that made him that, which are his, his bandmates. So mm-hmm. hence his quest to go gather them all.
1: Do you think by being kind of the lead, the the front man, the lead singer, that you tend to kind of cling to your past more? Do you see that in Golden Gabe?
0: Oh, it's quite possible, only because those are the people that you know that got the most famous. So I, I think I could probably, you could probably look for the similar things in like uh, you know a sports team. Whoever was the biggest player on the sports team got the most famous, and afterwards make look back on their life and like think of those as the glory days. Whereas someone who had a bit more. And even life, you know, might they go, Oh, that was nice, but I also like what I have now. Whereas I think the leader of a band is more likely to kind of look back fondly on those days mm. when he was like a god among men, you know.
1: Yes. So they it's just those two for a little bit initially. And then they run into, and this is where my memory fails me. Is it Moog that they run into next or Skull Drummer? Moog is next. Moog, yeah. okay. That's what I thought. So he's a wizard, and he yeah. has a he has a very personal reason um to go on this quest so can can you go into him a little I love him he's my favorite he's just so interesting so yeah tell me all about him yeah sure well Moog
0: is an interesting character the way he he ended up in the final story because he is a wizard he um he had a husband that died of this kind of incurable disease Mm -hmm. and he has worked tirelessly since the band broke up to try to find a cure for that disease so he lives in a in a tower and kind of lets life and love pass him by he is, when they meet him, he's wearing a one piece pajamas with like stars and stripes on it. I want him to make him, you know, sort of a typical wizard, but in a funny mm-hmm. way. Um, and as opposed to Clay, when Clay is like, you know, when Gabe first asked Clay to come along on this adventure, Clay's like, absolutely not. And Moog is like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, because he misses his friends and he's just, a, he's just a, it's not in him to say no to a friend at all, ever. Um, however... Moog also has contracted the disease which he is trying to cure. So um, you know he goes on it and, and maybe in hopes of finding a, a cure for it in the heart wild, which is this massive poisoned forest uh, where he kind of contracted the rot in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, however, he did not have that disease in every draft of the book until the very final draft of the book.
1: Yeah, you revealed it later too. like it wasn't like an immediate, revelation and but I really like that because by then you've already kind of hooked into him you have an you have an initial idea of what his motives are and then you kind of get the act that um revealed and it just by then you've kind of fallen in love with him a little bit as a character and you want the best for him because he's funny you know and then you find that and then you're like oh no now you really want to keep reading and see what happens to him Yeah. Well,
0: thank you for saying so. Yeah, he is. I mean, again, that way, he is like definitely the funniest character of the book. He's the most lighthearted and positive and optimistic character, but he's the one that of all of them has like kind of the ticking clock over his own mortality. So. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes. Okay. Then that's followed by Mattrick Skull drummer. Yep. Who is, this is hilarious to me. So he is now a King, but he is very unhappy and he has a very unfaithful marriage, which makes me think of the show G- oh got Gav- 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 oh i'm probably saying it wrong oh, galavant galavant yes yeah, yeah. yes galavant where like he had a girlfriend and he thought he was very much in love and she left to go be i think the queen of the king and then you find out she's actually this vicious person yeah. um but it got me thinking of that so yeah tell me all about skull drummer
0: uh so skull drummer he represents um i did leave, did forget to mention that moog sort of represents like the Jack of all trades in the band. Okay. You know, a lot of the band's got that keyboardist. Not every band, but some bands have a keyboardist or the guy that plays the triangle or a weird instrument like that or sets off the fireworks. And that that's Moog. Uh, Mattrick, on the other hand, as his kind of moniker suggests, represents the drummer. He fights with two knives. And you know, when when describing his fight scenes and things like that, I try to use as many words that you could also use to describe a drum solo. Um, and yeah, his, his demeanor, I think is try to t- is typical of, of a lot of drummers, kind of like the party hard kind of thing. Uh, and yeah, he did get married um, to a queen that they saved and uh, now has five kids, none of which are his, and <laughs> he despises his life. Although it, he does reflect later on in the book that, you know, and obviously his wife is not a sympathetic character necessarily, mm-hmm. Um but he does reflect later on in the book that he doesn't blame her for, you know, having these affairs because he was a shitty husband. She thought she was signing up to marry a hero and she was really marrying a slob that was uh, hailed as a hero. So he, of all people, doesn't blame her at all and and knows that he's as equally as at fault as, as she was in their failed marriage.
1: Yeah. So at this point, you have these different characters that represent passage of time and in skull drummers case it's you know someone settled down they, they went that route It went awry and they're dealing with that meanwhile you have moog who isolated you have gabe who um what would you say he represents his passage of time Regrets? Um,
0: well maybe just even trying to keep the past alive mm-hmm. He would have been fighting mercenary fights He would have been selling off you know his like, stuff to keep his you know debtors at bay and and just you know just trying to yeah. Sustained his lifestyle.
1: Yes. Kind of still living in the past a little bit, but yeah. you know, good for him, right? <laughs> like it's hey.
0: a fun
1: lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> and then of course, Clay Cooper, he seems to like, the life that he's established for himself seems to be the most stable, the most comfortable, the most to lose. And um, looking at all of up to this point, um, he is losing something, right? You have Golden Gabe who's going to earn something. Skulldjammer is going to get out of his you know, marriage and unhappiness and same with Moog, who's isolated, but mm-hmm. Clay is kind of different than all that. And did you do that because it just kind of felt the cards fell that way? Or is it because Clay being the like the narrator um, had needed to be different?
0: Um, ultimately, yeah. I mean, and Clay's own character arc itself is kind of a balance between his kind of violent nature and his... Then, like his his two his very very the whole book really is about people that are informed by their past mm-hmm. um and so he's very much a product of his mother and his father his mother who was kind of inquisitive and quiet and and caring and a father who was kind of violent and aggressive so he balances those two personalities between them so obviously work being in a band um you know he had to rely upon his the traits that his father gave him and then in his family life he embraces the traits that his mother passed on which he wants to embody more and more um so the a lot of his arc is about him going on this journey but still trying to keep that part of himself that he's worked so hard to preserve um his kind of more peaceful nature
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and at the same a lot of a lot of his character was my my, my own mom actually used to read us the poem, If, by Rudyard Kipling all the time, Um, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with it or if a reader or a listener is, but it's very much kind of like, you know, if you have, can you, if you can keep your head when all about, you are losing theirs, and it's, it's kind of about maintaining calm uh, amidst chaos, and, Mm -hmm. and Clay very much, I was hoping, I was trying to make him kind of embody that poem uh, Mm -hmm. as I was writing the the book and his story.
1: When golden gabe gets clay to join him and they first leave to go on their trek it reminds me so much of the hobbit because you're going from this warm comfortable place and then you're on the road and it's cold and i that always stands out to me that that dichotomy that that difference um so i just wanted to tell you that i thought that was cool
0: well thanks for saying so the hobbit and lord of the rings obviously it's a huge it was a huge inspiration to me and especially that idea you know the hobbit's life the, it's such a classic story of having being in comfort and then going out on the road
1: mm-hmm. and then
0: even in the very last paragraph of the book I didn't try to like you know m- take you know emulate it exactly but I wanted to with my last paragraph of the book I wanted to give you the same feeling that the last line of Lord of the Rings gave me you know so
1: I've also spoken, but, yeah. <laughs> okay so then Ganelon am I saying that correctly yeah. Yeah, All yeah, right. Yeah. Ganelon is a very unique addition um, to this uh, quest because he's he's a man out of time. He, he's he got frozen in time a little bit and got released. And he's known for being um, quiet and taciturn, but dangerous. And he's very youthful compared to the rest because he didn't get a chance to age. So that is really interesting. Tell me about you uh, what you thought of him.
0: Well, who knows how I came up with the idea in the first place which goes for a lot of the ideas in this book but um, he's yeah he's a character who was is literally frozen in the past he got turned to stone um, for a crime he committed and the band sort of like let it happen almost or didn't Mm -hmm. maybe fight it as much as they should have in retrospect Um, and it was at a time when they were all kind of ready to go their separate ways and he kind of took the fall for them in a way, so he got turned to stone and he's been stoned for 19 or 18 years, um, and yeah, they go and they go and thaw him out, as it were. Um, and yeah, he is, I think, a, pr- a pretty interesting character, and he he, because he's still in his prime, you know, and and he sees what has become of all his bandmates and doesn't like it one bit. Um, And so he at least amongst when they, when they, when they have their first fight and all of them are, you know, creaking wheels and squealing doors, he's the only one that's still like a
1: finely honed instrument and is, is
0: willing to like pull them through the first few scrapes until they can kind of get their shit together.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and it's, it's interesting because you notice the difference between the men who have had a chance to age and him Mm -hmm. and the difference between youth and, and experience. And I thought that was, that was interesting. So, I guess asking you now, um, if you came across your younger self from eight years ago, 10 years ago, would you feel that same difference too? Like, do you feel like there's been a big difference then between then and now? Um,
0: well, thanks to Facebook memories, I'm able to see him <laughs> all the time. Um, and boy, embarrassing. Is, is it, I know it is. That's pretty much the only reason I have Facebook. So I can go delete or delete my memories when they come up and be like, Oh, you idiot. Um, <laughs> And yeah, he was, I mean, the younger me actually is a lot more, not that I'm not pessimistic now, but boy, I was so optimistic my whole life as someone who wanted to be a writer, who was an aspiring writer and had, at least when they started out, had no clue how difficult that road is. Um, And that the mountaintop, once you get there isn't necessarily a peak, it's just like, you know, base camp Mm -hmm. (laughs) for for Everest of of a writing career. So it is interesting to look back at old me and see how positive and optimistic. And I, I honestly have nothing but respect for him because boy, oh boy, he, he, I mean, I, I worked for another book for 10 years before giving it up and writing Kings of the Wild. Uh, and just kind of always, I definitely had a lot of setbacks, especially like, you know, submitting to agents and getting rejected, but I never kind of gave up. So, and I sure as hell didn't have eggs in any other basket. So thankfully, yeah, I was just blindly blissfully ignorant. Um, Mm. and yeah, I, I, I had nothing but respect for that old Nick. I wish I could have his work ethic back actually.
1: I I can relate to that. I miss innocent Vicky from four years ago when I first decided to go on this journey and I've gotten this far, but, uh, no, no book deal yet. My agent's working very hard. Um, but it is, it, 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 that, the innocence of youth when you don't know what you're getting into and as a result I felt like I was a lot more gung-ho but once you know and you're more knowledgeable you do move a little slower more strategic thinking first kind of thing so all right um that was to me the main the main characters of this group when I look up like other people's character summaries some people include Larkspur um Mm -hmm. she comes in a lot later would you say that that like Oh, I meant to ask you this first. Ganelon, what, what instrument does he represent?
0: Oh, so Ganelon is the, uh, the axe man. So he literally wields, wields a giant axe and he is the, kind of the lead guitarist, um, the showstopper. Like he's the big, you know, yeah, the most, the, ultimately the most talented of all. of them. Gotcha. Okay, yeah.
1: And Larkspur is an enemy at first. So um, since people are including her as part of the group, even though she comes in later, like, what were your thoughts about about that character?
0: Well, Larkspur was actually kind of inspired by a friend of mine. I had this friend named Devin who was reading the book. Kind of every three chapters, I would give her three chapters to read. And she'd kind of be like, oh yeah, this is great. And kind of pump my tires. So by the time I really, probably I was like, oh, I should really put Devin in here somewhere. So that's kind of who she became oh, okay. uh, in the book. Um, and she's also like her, her character itself, um, her true real name is Sabbath, and purposely mm-hmm. spelt. So it's kind of a reflection of the of the band Black Sabbath. A lot of the a lot of the people in the group have kind of like bands associated with them as well. Um, and yeah, she was just kind of like, it's a, a thing that I really, really I find that I like now. And it's in features in both my books as someone who's not like the ultimate antagonist of the book but is sort of like a thorn in their side the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe a bit more sympathetic than the final antagonist in some cases. Um, and so I, I really like that and I'm going to maybe hopefully try to keep it going. So I think it's good to have a, kind of another threat coming at the main characters. And yes. You know, it represents that.
1: Which of these characters do you identify with most?
0: Ultimately it is, oof, it's a very, it's a cross between Clay Cooper and Moog. Um, okay. Clay Cooper because you know, he, he's got a very dry sense of humor and that's, and he's optimistic, but cynical at the same time. Um, and because he embodies those qualities that my own mom tried to instill in me. So, you know, he's, he's kind of like the best version of what I would like to be, or at least his good qualities, his best version is my best version rather. Um, and then Moog just because Moog is just like, says anything that comes to his mind is constantly mm. making jokes, even when it comes to like, you know, di- deflecting sorrow with humor, um, which is also very much one of my main traits. So um, yeah. Moog is a, good, is a character and I, he's another person that, or a tool that I use in the second book and that we'll be using the third as well to have at least one character that can say literally any joke I want to try to get away with. And Moog's the one <laughs> the first book that can just go for it and see if see if it gets past the editor's.
1: Yes, humor and sorrow. It's funny because you know it's they're so opposite of each other, but they go together really well. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that, for example, people that are going through trauma or dealing with issues might find comfort in humor. And um, so, how did you find that balance between those two things? Um, ultimately,
0: my editors helped me a lot find it as well, or find it. Well, I don't know that sentence didn't make sense, but. Um, Yeah, my editors helped me tone that, balance the two sides rather, because I think in the very first draft of the book, there was probably a bit more, a little bit more ridiculousness in there as well. And to to be honest, when I first started the book, despite that kind of poignant opening chapters, uh, I did mean it to be fun and funny and a book where you weren't necessarily that concerned about the lives of the main characters, like them dying at any moment rather you're interested in them as characters but you weren't like oh my god is this person going to get a sword shoved through them at any moment um which in a lot of like the the fantasy fiction at least in the last 10 years before my book came out that was it like everyone was dying in the end mm. um and so it was meant to be funny And then the poignant stuff just kind of <laughs> crept in there um, by accident as you kind of got more attached to the characters um but there were stuff and i think in the the process of finding an agent and getting an editor um, at first, I had an agent and then a prospective editor that both wanted Moog toned down or in the second case, right out of the book. Um, mm. Because he was kind of too ridiculous and he wasn't, he was more like a, it's like a Terry Pratchett character put into a Joe of or a Tolkien-esque world kind of thing.
1: Um, I'm glad you fought for him to say though.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Me too. And he was, he, There was a couple scenes, maybe one scene, I think, that I did take out. Um, But, I mean, there's even a scene called that i mean you'll know it as soon as i say it but it's called like we call it refer to it as the boner scene Mm -hmm. um, where through some weird means everyone has erections at a certain time and i remember when i first had a call with my my agent she was like blah blah blah, i love the book this and that that scene does need to go and i was like (gasps) great sure it's gone you're right whatever like you know because i was saying whatever it would take to get get an agent and then as i was telling my friends that they were like no you've got to fight for that scene please do it so I went back to her and I was like, listen, if I like, she's changed some things around and, and uh, restructure a few words, could I keep it? And she's like, well, I'll give it a shot. And we'll see. So uh, <laughs> I change it, took out a few words, um, like gestating for instance. Um, and, and she let me keep it in the end. And then there was a few scenes I think I maybe trimmed down because of what my editors thought, but uh, ultimately there was, you know, there's a scene where the five of them, the five of the band walk abreast up a hill and it's meant to be, uh, representative of one of those scenes in a movie where everyone's walking in slow motion side by side and then Moog trips over his robe and falls and all of them fall over top of him and I remember they kind of wanted that gone and I was like no that's got to stay mm-hmm. and even a see where Moog is pulling food out of his magic hat and throwing it at people and I and love I, that <laughs> yeah exactly I fought for that scene too I'm like eh, it's you know He's got to be a bit ridiculous. So there's
1: there's a, there's greatness and absurdity, especially given the setting. And there's so many fantasy novels out there, and to have those little kind of things thrown in, it just makes it so unique and fun. And I yeah. that's my kind of humor anyway. So yeah. um, I appreciated that you fought for that. Yeah. Thank okay. You. So now we have done our character descriptions. I have some character development questions now. These are more technical questions. So you didn't slam all these characters right in front of us straight out the gate. You did it with steady introductions. Each character feels unique. Each has their own motive. How did you do this? Um, Well, I think
0: a lot of that, and and it goes on in the second book too, although in the second book you meet the band all at once. And then you kind of learn more about them as the story goes on. Um, A, my book is very much a point A to point B, story you know at the end of the first three chapters where it's going to take place where the climax is going to take place because that's the whole point of the book mm-hmm. um so i want to make the journey there as interesting as possible and a lot of that comes in like you know learning about the characters or having small like you know them you know kind to having to come to terms with things within themselves along the way um, and i think a lot of that i learned from video games believe it or not um, I'm a huge fan of the, the games Final Fantasy, and there's a big game, a series called Mass Effect that I love, and those games are phenomenal at, as the story goes along, using their characters as storylines, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to just characters. Um, and so, I think that's probably something I took from that. And you know, when you do that, I think it allows not only does it make for compelling stories, but it you know makes the reader more attached to mm-hmm. the characters as you as you go along.
1: It, it also helps people that are maybe new to the format or, or the genre. Um, like in a video game, you want people to kind of learn. There's a learning curve to it. Yeah. Um, and by having Gabe in first, it's like, okay, we understand what you said, the stakes and the goal. And then as you each bump into each character, what, what I really liked about it though, is um, something I'm always trying to do in my own work is you don't want each meeting to feel the same, right? You want to stay away from that feeling of repetition because then the reader gets bored. So Mm -hmm. I I really liked the diversity in how they were all introduced. Um, So I just, yeah, I thought that was a great approach. Now with your follow-up, you're talking about introducing them all together and then breaking it out. So what was that like from a technical perspective as a writer doing it that way? Uh,
0: Well, there's challenges to both because in the first book, you have a band that all their like greatest moments are in their past. So you have to have them reminiscing about things in the past and not make the reader feel too left out about it, but make them feel like, oh, that sounds really amazing. And so in the second book, the band, especially because they represent more 80s bands, where in the 80s music was very much trying to emulate 70s stuff, but make it louder, bigger, better, um, and these people like most of the bands in the 70s, they came from very humble beginnings, recorded in very humble settings, started off like in a van together and then maybe ended up in an airplane. Whereas in the 80s, they started off, you know, in a bus or an airplane and just went bigger and bigger. Um, mm-hmm. And so the second band um, in Bloody Rose is that you see them at first and you see them all as what their persona that they present to the world is. And then it's as you go, as the main character goes on the journey with them, um, you learn more about them and their who they are really, for better or worse, uh, as you go along. Um, Yeah. So, and they're also a a because Saga has the the luxury of being they're all they're old guys, and you're sympathetic to them because they're old in a lot of ways, and they love each other, and they're you know they're they they're mature. And so they're a lot easier to like, whereas, you know, if you went on tour with Axl Rose and Guns and Roses in the 80s, you would hate them. And you would think all these people are psychos. And none of them are redeemable people. So, Writing a band that's in its prime, like, you know, and, and yet you, know, you look at, even look at something like Led Zeppelin. Now they're all very even keeled, lovely gentlemen. They're knights for God's sake. But at the time, you know, or look at the Rolling Stones nowadays, everyone just loves them. But and the Rolling Stones when they were in their prime were like arrested constantly. The police like any any the police today protect them, whereas the police back in their prime like literally tried to arrest them at any chance they got. So writing a band in its prime and trying to make sympathetic characters is is quite a challenge I think. And and uh, but you don't want to make them too sympathetic because it would be un Realistic, so yeah
1: you mentioned your third book taking place in the 90s what is your observation of musicians in the 90s that w- might inform your work
0: yeah 90s music I mean it's there's you know the common theme that I found of it is uh there's a lot of anger actually in it whether it's mm-hmm. grunge or um or hip-hop Or you know, think bands like Rage Against the Machine. There's a lot of there was very got very political. Sometimes it was just apathetic, Um, and and especially even hip hop too. There was there was obviously hip hop that got really famous that was radio friendly, but the stuff that was like really like uh, like Nas's Illmatic album. When you listen to that, that's basically like a snapshot. It's like come spend an hour with me in my life and try to li- like really, really listen and empathize with this. And obviously a lot of people just didn't, it just kind of passed them by. A couple of the more catchy songs caught on, but um, there was the music was trying to tell you what was going on in their life and trying to like, almost like, not like ask for help, but just be like, this is how it is. Like, like if everything isn't, you know, rosy as as it is, you know, in your own life. And so, yeah, there's a lot of current of kind of anti-establishment uh, mm-hmm. fury in there, so. Yeah.
1: interesting okay yeah. so for the readers waiting for your third maybe they have something to look forward. yeah to. <laughs>
0: it's great for inspiration but a lot harder to make funny and ultimately it's not that I have to going to be like using the music and the actual 90s itself as like a template because I'll have my own the world that I've kind of set up for myself but it's definitely an inspiration a big inspiration
1: how much did the plot inform the character inform the plot I know it's a cycle so yeah <laughs> how did you yeah. do that um ultimately
0: i mean in the the first book is more of the plot because it's like like i said before it's a very point a to point b kind of story uh and the characters had to go there no matter what whereas in the second book the characters inform it a lot more just because it's their it's very 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 much their own just dis- decisions and their reactions to what happens to them that that makes them end up at the final battle Um, so yeah obviously it's different for every book and um, when writing Kings of the Wild especially though I didn't I had spent like I said 10 years before writing this book that I meticulously planned out and world-builded and all drew the map up beforehand obviously as a young fantasy writer does and with Kings of the Wild I didn't do any of that I was just like screw this I, I wrote it and it was just character 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 no world building. If I had to add a paragraph in here and there, I did. Um, and then luckily, when it got bought, Orbit was in a very, very rare phase of their publishing life when they, for about six months, they wanted bigger books as opposed to carving books down smaller, which every publisher does all the time, forever, mm-hmm. always. Um, so they just went through about six months where they're like, let's make books bigger. And so Kings of the Wild, it was uh, 120,000 words when I finished it. 100 hundred thousand words when my editor or my agent finished like, paring it down. Yeah, and Orbit wanted wanted uh, fifty thousand words added to it. Wow, so there was there was some some of Clay's backstory was told in flashbacks which they wanted gone, so that was about ten thousand words. So ultimately, it ended up being around one hundred thirty five thousand. Um, so I added about forty thousand, and ultimately, all that extra stuff was uh, a lot of it was world building great deal of it was moog's character as far as having the rot and then a huge chunk of it was the bad guy who did not exist in every version again of the book except for the final one um the original like antagonist was just this massive horde of monsters Uh, and it wasn't until the final like editing for orbit that i added this character uh last leaf and his whole thing which thank god i did because he becomes the catalyst for the entire story afterwards
1: nice it, yeah. that's interesting how much uh a story can change after getting your agent you know the duration of the agent and then the book deal where they the editors continue um how i don't can you speak i don't know you can speak to your experience but is this a general expectation for writers that are listening and want to get a book deal that that's what they could anticipate
0: and you mean like not adding the words no no, like, in almost every case, it's gonna they're gonna want it smaller. Um, I've never ever heard of anyone asking for a bigger book ever. And when I tell people that, they're just like, "That is insane." Um, and yeah, I think my my agent thought that they were gonna try to make it even smaller, which you know is usually the case, um, just because you know they're they're a quicker read, and and ultimately, especially with a debut author a bigger book you don't kind of think about it but it's it takes more money to print you can put less in a box and they don't want that they want to be able to print it easier and send more out so um smaller is better and the, for that first book I, I worked on Four Kings of the Wild was when, it, when I first finished it it was 340,000 words
1: wow it was
0: just a monster which at the time when I I wrote it you know not I wrote it didn't write it in the 90s but I You know, fell in love with fantasy in the 90s and the famous the big books then were wheel of time and and game of thrones and these days in fantasy at least brandon sanderson can get away with writing massive tomes but zero other people i mean and and patrick roth obviously but it just doesn't it doesn't happen too often
1: what about with your subsequent books within the trilogy do you have freedom to like they go oh yeah okay nicholas has proved himself we can he can do whatever he wants now with these word counts
0: um, I probably could make it a lot bigger. They would definitely try to keep it a bit lower and a bit more the story, a bit more, you know, fast flowing and spelt. But uh, the, I think the second book ended up being pretty much exactly like, I, I want to say that they're one hundred thirty are 135,000 and 136,000 or something very, very close. Okay. Um, and when it came to the second book, um, I, you know, I'm terrible with deadlines and I miss my deadline only by a little bit relatively compared to the last deadline I've missed. Um, but when I did finally turn it in, like I'm pretty meticulous about going over stuff before I hand it in. Um, so there wasn't that many structural edits to go on with the second book. There was just kind of tweaking to go on. Gotcha. So uh,
1: interesting. That's fascinating to hear. Um, is Orbit still wanting big books or are they past that? Oh, no, they were past it. They were done it like
0: about six months after Kings of the Wild. <laughs> it's probably six months before it came out. Um, oh, because there are other books. The only other book I, I know that also like got 50,000 words added to it um, didn't do that well, unfortunately. Um, and by all accounts, it's a great book. And I think it was already kind of a big book when it got turned in and and it just got made bigger. And I mean, I have a copy of it and I, I haven't read it yet because it is dauntingly big. And so, especially with a debut author, you just don't, you know, and, and it's not just publishing that wants that. Like even me who I love getting stuck into big books, like, like I, I am kind of still daunted by giant tomes these days just because my, A, my attention span is probably lower and, you know, short on time. So mm-hmm. with a, with an, with an author, you don't know yet, you don't want to necessarily take the chance. So.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, I, I do think that the attention span is shorter generally with the TikTok generation. And mm-hmm. I was listening to uh, Prince Harry's book, Spare, and his chapters are really, really short. But I think mm-hmm. that it speaks to like easy, digestible moments in time that you can grab in your very busy life. And so yeah. now I'm trying to do something similar with my writing structure. We'll see how I do. But yeah, it does yeah. Like it's I think I'm be to in a big fan
0: of short chapters. It's yeah, definitely something I tried to do... Um, and I also like a tool that I try to use is obviously it's not with every single chapter, but I'm also a huge fan of like the endings of chapters. Like my favorite author, Guy Gabriel real I used to, before I even read his book, like a new book of his, I would open it up and look at the end of some of his chapters. And he just, every one of them is just like a goddamn poem. Oh, um, God. And so I would try to, you know, make the end of my chapters hit hard. And also because, because I was writing a book that I wanted to appeal to just, you know, n- not you know non-fantasy readers as well as fantasy Mm -hmm. readers um kind of like cut the chapter before i should about a page before i normally would and so you were it just felt that it was like you'd stumble into the next chapter and then stumble into the next chapter. yes hopefully uh, read a few more before you went to bed so
1: uh huh. Well, yeah. It's it's a strategy that a lot of uh, mainstream thriller novels novelists use, where each each ending hooks you right to go into the next one, and yeah. before you know it, you're reading more chapters than you meant. Okay. Um. All right. On the topic of ensembles, writing an ensemble. What was your favorite part about writing about all these characters and how they come together?
0: Um. I'm a big fan of the like the quiet scenes between battles. Um. And that goes for both books. Um. And again, it's a thing that's very much inspired by video games like Final Fantasy and Mass Effect, and that's a, kind of like the quiet moments where they're all sitting around a fire and talking and reflecting and laughing and joking and making fun of each other and and getting kind of vulnerable with each other. Um, those are by far my favorite scenes, and I think they're the scenes that, um, throughout the book, you know, they as long as you make them interesting and don't make them seem like lulls. Um, they do so much to further a character and to make the moments where they're in dire straits seem more dire. Um, and then you can you throw one in at the end, like, you know, in Kings of the Wild, there's a moment at the end where five of them are together for, you know, what may or may not be the last time. And they all, you know, they're telling each other, they love each other. And to me that those moments can be little kind of mini climaxes as well. And and yeah, they're by, by far my favorite parts of writing an ensemble, but that said, writing the fight scenes, although I usually hate writing them when I'm in them, uh, they can be fun too, especially when the ensemble in question are, you know, bumbling idiots and and, uh, well past their prime because you're, it's like all these pieces trying to fit together disjointedly. So it can kind of be kind of interesting to write as well.
1: So then what would be the most challenging part writing an ensemble?
0: once again the fight scenes um <laughs> just because yeah almost everyone i've written i uh especially like the first one that that saga fights in the band fights in, in the first book um they fight this you know this chimera and and i remember oh god i was writing that and i just thought it was the sh- almost awful stupid scene uh i think it's a, it lasts last for a few chapters and i felt it was so bogged down and slow and then i went back and and read it and i was like oh no this is this is fantastic mm-hmm. um, and so yeah writing the fight scenes can be really hard fitting all the pieces together when it's when you're writing just from one obviously one person's in a fight it's like their perspective and this happened and this happened and this happened but trying to kind of balance the timing of the fight and keep it exciting and and having the main character have the time to look around and see what all the other characters are doing um just even finding the phrasing for that how they bought that time for themselves can be can be challenging sometimes
1: what advice do you have for our listeners and writers in general who, all right, they're going to tackle an ensemble now and they want to do it well?
0: Um, I mean, for I think for a brand new writer, and this isn't necessarily like anecdotal for myself, but like uh, try to keep it to one POV, even though it's so tempting to do multiple ones and by all means disregard this advice you know if you want to but I think a lot of new writers myself included I wrote my first my first you know novel that will never be published had tons of main characters and tons of POVs and you know once again it was a product of the books I had read when I was a kid trying to emulate them and and those writers what we kind of forget is that they had written a lot of other books first and they were really good at it and know it is a skill that you develop and i think it's a lot easier to write from one character's perspective at at least in the beginning um and and do it that way i think a lot of people kind of tend to spread themselves too thin as it were in their first attempt so yeah just keep it to one person but yeah ultimately yeah it's try to make characters empathetic but not too empathetic if if it's if it's not true to their characters mm-hmm. uh, and and have a lot of those quiet moments in there there's another a series of books i forget the name of the actual series but the first book's called blind space by an author named jeremy zoll who um they're kind of like a sci-fi they're very much like a mass effect kind of books and and he especially in his second book has a lot of the same things i do is the quiet moments the drinking together the the events that make them seem like real people as opposed to just these kind of caricatures uh, that I think can lend a lot to to the characters as they go on.
1: That's some really great advice. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, We have covered a lot on the topic of ensembles. Have I missed anything? Is there anything else you would like to add? Uh, Not
0: necessarily, no, no. That's pretty good. Okay. yeah, I mean, as a just as an exploration of my own work, more say like in the, my, my first book, and for those interested, say in the, in reading the second book as well. Um, although the first book, each character is represented by it represents a, a like I said, a member of the band. Um, in my second book, they're they're representative of genres of '80s music. So one person represents kind of like the punk rock. One's the metal, the hair metal one's the kind of literally her name's Cura, and you know represents the cure and uh goth kind of stuff um, and so yeah it's it's a bit different in the second book so it was a kind of a cool challenge and and fun I think it makes each character kind of very different
1: yeah and some great easter eggs as people are reading through and kind of discovering these things
0: yeah and although you don't like you you know there's a lot of music references in both books but the music knowledge is not required whatsoever my editor You know, she didn't get any of the references when she read it, uh, which sometimes for the best because um, I almost had an agent once that was an older British guy. He got all the he got all the references, and they were too much. Um, So, which is a fair a fair critique of it as well. So, um, you know, if you get references, you get them. If you don't, you don't. Um, But there are soundtracks for both books that I've uh, curated on Spotify. with the first book especially, it is a chapter-by-chapter chapter soundtrack, and very many of the chapters in that book were inspired by music. Um, there was a part where they fight a dragon in the in the first book, and, well, they more just like a run away from them. But uh, when I was writing that scene, I just could not get it, and I had started it over and over and over. Then finally, one day on the way to work, I was listening to this ZZ Top song called La Grange." And I was just like, oh, this is the scene. This is how it has to go. And you could now listen to that song and read that scene and it would beat for beat in the song coincide with what happens in that scene. Um, and so yeah, music informed a lot of how those scenes work. And the same goes for the climax of the second book is beat for beat to a, a very specific meatloaf song as well. So um, by no means you have to listen to the soundtracks but I think they can only kind of amplify what I was going for.
1: That's awesome. That's so much fun. All right, Nicholas, how can our listeners follow you, find you, learn more about you?
0: Um, Well, I'm fairly active, fairly active on, on Twitter. Um, I do try to promote a lot of, you know, other fellow authors and artists and things like that on there as well. Um... And then on Instagram as well, I I'm a pretty huge reader um, of like comics and books. And so whenever I'm reading something I enjoy or even just get sent something from from whether it's a publisher or another author, I try to promote as much as I can and just share the things that I love, whether it's TV shows or anime and stuff like that. Um, So, yeah, I would say Instagram and Twitter, Facebook, I'm pretty inactive on and I don't even look at my friends like new friends anymore. Or
1: Facebook. I feel like that's just across the board. People have that attitude.
0: Yeah. It's hard to really let go of because I don't want to lose touch with some old friends, Mm -hmm. but, uh, but otherwise, yeah, it's just, I don't scroll down that wall because only evil lies there.
1: (laughs) All right. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, this has been a great conversation and I can't wait to share it with our listeners.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. a lot of great questions. And yeah, for anyone out there, if you, if you read my books or, or if you've read them or are thinking of reading them, then thank you.
1: Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer-run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you. Join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.